Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Yeah, this is take two of this opening. I am post-New Orleans trip brain right now. You've both witnessed multiple casualties of that in the like 15 minutes you've been in my house. So thank you in advance, both of you, for bearing with me. I'm going to be a bad podcast uh, co-host and a bad friend today. Well, you already screwed up what will definitely be the best joke I make all night. I have nothing left in the hopper. Oh, that's because you're unfunny. That's Evan's job to be funny on this podcast. Yeah, and you, right. and you ruined the one. Well, my job here is done. I thought you were just like playing into the joke when you, Brad originally said it, and then you didn't. You just I, kept going. I got it. <laughs> I got to tell you, New Orleans chews you up and spits you out. I am. Uh, there's no depth to anything I'm going to say or think for like the next four days. So that's your burden to bear now. I certainly can't bear it. Buckle up. Lots has happened in the hockey world, which I'm actually really excited to come back and uh, and talk about. So welcome back to the Winged Wheel Podcast, folks. I know it's a day later than we usually publish. Uh, our weekend episode on Monday, uh, but we're we're excited to be back here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, lots happening in the playoffs, prospects, and uh, plenty more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Sheldon Keefe's placeholder. And I'm Evan. Did you see the Dubis uh, press conference today? I did not. He is, uh, that, that one had some weight to it. Anyhow. On Why, this- something happened? Let's talk about it. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, makeup of the Red Wings moving forward. Uh, this conversation started post-draft lottery in terms of what do the Red Wings need uh, and what's viable to to make this a competitive team because the lottery luck obviously has never and will never go their way. Uh, we'll talk about um, the playoffs and how things have shaken out. And we're also going to do a prospect profile to you uh, for you today for a player that's uh, going to be relevant for the Red Wings possibly at either pick, depending on how you feel about this player. He's a little divisive. Uh, All of that and lots more. Before we get into that, I want to let you know that this podcast is proudly uh, supported by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash wingedwheelpodcast if you want to join the uh, so-called Dub Dub Club. You get a lot of benefits, the Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes in which we, uh, I'll I'll share some stories with you and we usually kind of let loose, have some fun. I let the guys swear uh, a lot more on that, so (laughs) it's usually a little bit more animated. Uh, you also get access to the Patreon exclusive Discord, uh, as well as uh, automatically being entered into the uh, every giveaway that we do. For example, we gave away two tickets to every Red Wings home game this season, uh, the vast majority of them going to our Patreon supporters. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. In addition to all that, you also support all of our fundraising and charity work for the Jamie Daniels Foundation, Winged Wheel Podcast Nights at the LCA, uh, growth of the podcast content universe and launching uh, our new show, Expected by Whom, hosted by Sean Shapiro and Prashant Iyer, all of that. So uh, thank you to our patrons. We are now coming to a acceptance of what the Red Wings are, which is not going to have an Austin Matthews lottery win, not going to have a Connor McDavid lottery win, did not have the Connor Bedard lottery win. So the question is, what's next? Uh, our good friend Max Boltman of The Athletic Detroit uh, wrote a really great piece. It came out uh, today uh, titled How the Red Wings Can Build a Stanley Cup Contender Without Superstars. Uh, we'll link it in the description of this episode. I really, really, really encourage you to read it. Uh, but it's an important question to ask because until Detroit uncovers a superstar, a true superstar, either in the depths of the draft or someone really overperforms their pick, 
what do you do? Because at best, who let's ask this question. Who on the Red Wings is a superstar or has the potential to be a superstar and come at this with harsh reality? This is like the question your professor asks to give you like a free mark to get the brain going, right? This is like when you, like, like if you write your name on the t- on this test, you get a free bonus point. It's and but you know what? It's it's a hard truth for some fans. Like it's this isn't a tough question like it would be for other teams who have who have superstars. That's right. So we to make this point clear, we have to define what would you classify as a superstar? For a forward, is that you know getting heart votes, like not winning, obviously, or like being in contention just to be in the top ten of the ballot. Same thing for defensemen, is that like top ten Norris ballots every couple of years or so? Like what what are the parameters that define superstar? Or is it just kind of what your gut tells you? I'm I'm kind of a gut feeling kind of guy. Like, but I think your gut is biased on, you know, points, votes, eye yeah. test, all that fun stuff. Totally. It's it's comprehensive. Like there are guys would you call Nugent Hopkins a superstar? No. Mm, no. But he had a hundred point season, and for a lot of people that would be the benchmark. So yeah. I don't think you can attach it to like one static uh level of production, especially with scoring changing so much in the NHL right now. All right, so if we're just going by gut about do I feel like this player has to be the potential to be one of the best players at his position in the league? Yes, like a top upper. Okay. Like consider all the tiers that a player falls into. The superstar should be an extra tier above that is just so exclusive like a dozen or so guys could be in there. Okay, so if we look at the Red Wings' current roster and in the entire prospect pipeline of all the players in the Red Wings organization— who could fall into that superstar category? For me, that list is Mo Sider. Fully agree. That's the end of the list. Fully agree. Yeah, mine, I would also add Dylan Larkin because when I go, is he a top 32 centerman in the league? I say yes. Yeah, but that's not a superstar. That's a first-line center. Arizona has a first-line center. So yeah, but he's not good. <laughs> I mean, this is the harsh reality. And not that I'm saying Dylan Larkin's not good, but... Dylan Larkin is not the first line center on any of the teams left in the playoffs right now. I wouldn't say Moritz Sider right now is a superstar. I think he has the potential to be. I think Dylan Larkin does too. Dylan Larkin's 27 now. And every year gets more points. Okay. No, that's like, fair. Yeah, it's a fair argument. I, I disagree. I think he's like. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still, our our horse still has two legs and is Foaming at the mouth. But. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think this is, for me, the differentiator between star and that word super. Because I think Larkin's a star. He's yes. a first-line center, point-per-game player. He's marketable. He is, you can say right now, definitively the best player on the Red Wings. He is a star. He is not a superstar. I think Mo Sider is going to get Norris consideration at some point in his career. I don't think Larkin's ever going to get major award consideration in his career. Are we like, saying superstar right now or... Potential some, to be. Even oh, potential okay. to be. Because you're so. al- if you think Marco Casper could burst onto the scene and be a superstar, you're allowed to pick him. But to me, the cold reality is in the Red Wings farm system, they have a lot of players who could be top six players, maybe one or two guys who could get to that Dylan Larkin level of star category as long shots. But I think the only guy in the entire system, prospector on the roster, who has the potential to be among the best at his position in the 
NHL is Mo Sider, and that is it, full stop. I think Mo Marco Casper, full potential to be a great top six forward. Dylan Larkin, number one center, no questions, no arguments about that anymore. Lucas Raymond, I think, has the potential to be a really good first line winger. Um, but I don't think he gets up to uh, top winger in the NHL category. I don't think Simon Edmondson is going to be a top defenseman in the NHL, even though I think he's going to be a really good top four defenseman. Um, okay. I'll throw one more out there as a long shot, but I'll say the potentials there. If, if you look with a long enough scope, Sebastian Cosa. I don't have the most faith in Sebastian Cosa. I am actually more down on him than the average Red Wings fan tends to be, but I'd be lying to myself if I said the potential wasn't there. True. He uh, is he is still the gigantic athletic freak who's coming off a very promising year on while well, he's still in the middle of a playoff race with Toledo. He's done everything in the ECHL this year we would want to see from him. So I I can't dismiss that. Again, I know I use this line way too much. Am I, would I put a bet on Sebastian Costa to be in Vesna consideration one day? I would not, but the potential is there. There is so much uncertainty around goalies that I can't argue with you that the potential is there. I think the variance on him is insanely high because of position and oh, yeah. just what we've seen from him so far. <laughs> He never plays a regular game for the Red Wings is also on the table yeah. for him. Like, yeah. it's the nature of the position. But if we're talking potential, I I don't like putting him in this conversation, but I feel like, to be fair, I have to. So the point of that exercise wasn't to uh, to be an indictment on the Red Wings because all these players that you're probably I mean, thinking. <laughs> well, on, on the, like, the future construction of the team, sure. But those players, like... There are a lot of you who are in your car saying, what about Lucas Raymond? What about Marco Casper? What about Simon Edmondson? Like, first of all, any one of these players could take massive steps, emerge, and actually realize that superstar category. It happens. Like, genuinely, it happens. I don't want to say often, but you can't rule it out. And every year, someone in the league is going to surprise you in terms of how much they elevate their their game. But for that to happen, something is going to have to fundamentally change about who they are as a player. You, which, you, which is part of Which growth. has happened. I mean, not that he'll ever be a superstar, but Mark Michael Rasmussen skating. When we wrote him off and we said, here's what his potential could be at this point, nobody foresaw that dramatic improvement in his skating. Nobody. And that happens so rarely. Because like right now we're sitting here and am I, am I going, could Lucas Raymond be a really, really good player? Yeah, a superstar? No. But if all of a sudden Lucas Raymond comes to camp next year and he makes a Michael Rasmussen level jump in his skating, oh yeah, Lucas Raymond's got superstar potential. But those circumstances happen so rarely that we can't in good faith include that in this conversation. But yeah, it's a good point to acknowledge. It could happen, but we have but we have to ignore it for the sake of this conversation because it's not likely. And you can't bank on it. Exactly. It's like banking on winning the draft lottery. Exactly. So there, if those of you who have, you know, uh, angry or, or, you know, even just like, we yeah. take five days off and we just come back and throw water in people's <laughs> face. <laughs> but for those of you who are, who are advocating for these players, it, it's a good indication of the Red Wings are starting to build a really solid foundation of really good players. Some are in the really good category. Some are in the star category, but the, the thing that we talk about and folks who talk about, you know, building Stanley Cup competitors is you're driven by superstars more and more in this league as it as it uh, evolves. The Red Wings haven't had that yet. 
So how do you move forward? What I really liked about uh, Max's article is the the comparisons he drew to Carolina. And he goes a lot more into uh, some really good visualization statistics uh, in depth. So that'll be really interesting for you to read. But Carolina is a team where I think there's some players who at some point in their careers could make an argument to be in that superstar tier. And they're definitely way more fleshed out. Obviously, they're in the conference finals than the Red Wings are. But that is a collection of star players, a collection of really good players that is making noise year after year, and especially this year, like trouncing other teams in the playoffs. So is that Detroit's model moving forward? It has to be. They don't have another option. That's that's the reality of it. But if you want to look player to player, Carolina to Detroit, yeah, there are some lines to be drawn. Are Sebastian Ajo and Dylan Larkin all that different? No. Could Lucas Raymond become Marty Nietzsche? Yes. And those are Carolina's top two scorers in the playoffs right now. Um, the big difference between Carolina and Detroit right now in terms of stars is Carolina has three established stars on defense. Jacob Slavin, Brett Pesci, and Brent Burns. Now, yeah. I know Slavin and Pesci aren't household names, but they are stars. They are legitimately great players. Now, Cider is very much in their tier already. Maybe not Slavens or Burns, but yeah, Cider to Pesci, I'd say he's ahead of Pesci. Um, so what the Red Wings need is they need Edvinson and Wallman to become Pesci and Burns and Cider to get to that Slaven level, which I think is all possible. Again, is it likely? No, but I, this is actually one of those, you know, pie in the sky things that I don't think is terribly unreasonable. I think Wallman, with a little more improvement, could get to that level. I think Cider, like I said, could very much get to Slavin's level, if not eclipse it. And I think uh, Edvinson could get to the Pesci level as well. Um, the big difference between Carolina, and I'm so happy Max pointed this out because it's it's the harshest reality of the statement, is you can't have this lack of stars at the top, like superstars. And have, you know, negative value players in your lineup. And yeah, he used goals above replacement as uh, the metric to compare, which is probably a really good one to use for this example. Carolina had one negative goals above replacement player this season. Detroit had seven. You, you cannot have those boat anchors on your team. Because if you are, you know, Dallas right now, uh, Yanni Hockenpah and Nessa Lindell are getting caved these playoffs. You can cancel that out when you have a Jason Robertson, a Rupe Hintz, and a Miro Haskin in playing at those levels. And that's the point. The Red Wings right now don't and won't have that. So they have to be perfect. And I mean almost literally perfect in building out the bottom of this roster because you need to bring value from all four lines, which is how Seattle's succeeding on the other side of the aisle from Dallas right now. Because they also are built in the model that Detroit wants to be. Now, expansion team versus this. The, mm, some things about how Seattle is built right now are unrealistic for Detroit. But that is how they are doing it. They are just killing Dallas in waves. Yeah. So, yeah, sure, whatever line's playing against Haskin in that night's not doing anything. But whatever line they're throwing out against Dallas's bottom pair can absolutely cave them. Do you think if you throw out a line right now of Pew Suter, Joe Valeno, and I don't know. Whoever is going to cave anybody in the league right now? No. They're, no, the best you can hope is that line stays afloat and gives you some mismatched depth scoring. Yeah, yeah, and every, you know, maybe 30 goals a year they contribute in, but... 
that that's not a recipe for success. And I'm going to make another point here before I, I let you jump in because we talked about it at length for Detroit this season. And I think especially when it comes down to playoff hockey, and I know American Friedman talk about this a lot, Detroit doesn't have enough pricks on their team. Teams have to hate playing against you. So if you're going to be devoid of superstars, if you're going to be deep top to bottom, you're going to be an ultra defensive team because that's what Detroit's going to have to do. You have to be an, everyone on that roster has to be an absolute pain in the ass to play against. You need to be disruptive. You like Which you, leads, which involves a lot of foot speed. Yeah. Which the Red Wings do not have. Yeah. And when someone irritates you, you have to swarm them like a bunch of honey badgers. You need, you're going to take penalties, you know, for all, you know, as overboard as Michael Bunting goes, the Red Wings don't have anybody like that. You look at even the top players on a Tampa Bay, for example, or a Florida, Matthew Kachuk, he's a prick. Nikita Kucherov, he's a prick. Dylan Larkin, he's a prick on the ice. This is what you need. Great guys off the ice, all of them. But you need to be deep, flawless, and unbelievably difficult to play against. And do the Red Wings check any of those boxes right now? As a whole, no. Flat out, no. Well, we wouldn't be seventh in the division if we did. No. You love calling out that seventh in in the division purely because you nailed that prediction. Probably because it might happen again next year. Evan, can you please wait until September? No spoilers just yet. Brad, uh, a few of the points you talked there, one is that, you know, the Red Wings still have a bunch of negative, uh, uh, you know, impact players. The funny thing is, this team is still in a way better spot than they were previously. Like, they are actually trending in the right direction on removing below replacement level players. Like, they have gotten better uh, addition by subtraction. I know the results that Evan just talked about, seventh in, in the division, the overall points increase didn't end up where it needed to be this year. But still, anyone who's watched the the entirety of the Red Wings season, they can see this team is slowly getting better, much closer to competing this year than they were in the past. But they have a lot of work to do. One thing that I really like about Carolina, and I wish this wasn't the direct the direction Detroit had to go because it's hard to do, but it's worked f- well for Carolina, even in their disappointing years, even in years where they, you know, faltered in the playoffs early, whatever. They had a foundation of really, really rock solid defense. You you talked about the players just now, Brad. That shelters your goalie. It gives your forwards the luxury of having an off night. It just allows you to go out there and gives you a chance to win in a lot of different ways, either through blowout or, or low scoring game. Your goalies can be rusty. They can come in cold. A rock solid defense is how Carolina has stayed, you know, above average at worst for a long, long time. And that sucks because two things. One, it's uh, a little boring. And I say that, I I don't know if you know, but I used to play defense. Uh, No, I didn't. Yeah. So it's as much as I advocate for, for really good defense, it's not really the way the league's trending. Uh, The talent pool is thinner and thinner every year, especially now that we're at 32 teams and it's hard to get uh, everyday top four defensemen. It flat out is it's, it's not a sexy way to draft. It's not an exciting way to develop players. You have to have more patience with defense, but Carolina with those players, that's what they have. So I think Max nailed it, and I think you nailed it, Brad. Detroit really needs to bring that in because the the scoring is going to have to improve by the players they have now improving. They're going to have to get fortunate in the draft, and they're going to have to continue to take smaller steps because they're, they're not going to get that big swing from a superstar. Yeah, and... 
you know, it's unfair to put it on the players, but for that to happen, a lot of the prospects that are in the pipeline, in order for this team built as it is, lack of superstars, to be cup contenders, Marco Casper has to hit. He, not, and I'm not saying he has to become a superstar. He has to be at least what his draft projection said he would be. He should be a... He can't come short of that. He needs to be, on this Red Wings team, a really good second-line center. Yeah. NHL average middle six, but on this Red Wings team, with, if, if Dylan Larkin is the only center that's challenging him for a, a top six center spot, he has to be a really good, impactful, think like, you know, piss you off and still produce second-line center. Yeah, like a lot of the guys that we are projecting in the Red Wings system now, beyond Casper, have to hit. Edvinson no longer is a luxury. He has to be a top four defenseman with an exclamation mark. Carter Mazur has to come in and be a productive middle six scoring winger. You know, Elmer Soderblom has to come in and be a productive third line scoring winger. Like For the Red Wings to be good, these prospects have to come in and start taking the jobs of these negative value players. And, you know, we can sit here and ramble off who's, doesn't matter. Pick whoever you want. The old if, Mike Babcock. List. If you think they're a negative value player, they probably are. And Mazer, Soderblom, Edvinson, they have to start taking jobs. Yep. That's the reality of it. And they have to be good enough to do it. And, you know, are they going to hit on all of them? No. But hey, they have four first round picks in the next couple of years. That gives them some options to, you know, I, I know over seven years we're sick of this term. That's four more darts. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a dart as in a pick. There are players available for trade out there. That could also be the solution. And I've said time and time again, I think trade, especially if you're if you're looking across two years, one of those premium picks between the first and second round of this year and next year's draft are, are going to be moved in a, a trade for a, a ready now NHL player, if not more than one of those picks. Now, one last thing I want to say is thinking about this makes me a lot more open to going forward defense if the Red Wings are going to make their two picks as they are in this draft. Because like I just advocated for, they need a rock solid defensive group and they have players who could do it. But man, if you really have six defensemen who are impactful NHL players where there's a guy on the third pairing who would be second pairing on a lot of other teams in the NHL or whoever it might be, I'm very open to, to, moving in that direction if they really believe in Asimashev or uh, Axel sandin Palika or whoever it might be. like I'm a lot more open to a defenseman because you need, again, that backstop, that foundation. I know it's not fun, and I know you hate me, Brad, for that, but I, I just want to put that out there. It, it Thinking about that makes me a lot more open to that concept and not just shooting for, for high scoring with both picks. So this this might shock you a little bit, but it's a very specific circumstance that I'm going to reference here. There is a scenario where I think I might actually advocate for taking a defenseman at number nine. Oh my God. It's a very, so pick six, seven, eight are the three USNTDB guys. Yep. If that happens, obviously our top three targets there are gone. And now depending on how you feel about Dvorsky, this could sway your opinion one way or another. Again, I still lean forward here, but there are a lot of intriguing forwards who are going to be available at 17. They're going to be gambles, but they're going to be intriguing, like a, a Cal Ritchie, a Matthew Wood. A, there's about three or four other guys that are going to be in that mix. There, hell, even some Moxifed Oliver Moore falling that far. 
that make you think maybe 17 is a place to take a forward. Boy, do I keep looking at this Red Wing system and going, there is nobody like Sandine Pelica here. There is nobody. They need offense and they need it from the offense and the back end badly. Sandine Pelica solves one really big problem. He shoots right and he can quarterback power play. When you were walking in, Evan, did it tell you, do you see a pig fly over the house or? No, I didn't. Now, if my scenario breaks down the way it does, I still probably prefer Dvorsky. Yeah. But again, depending on how high you are on the forwards that should be available around 17, that could really change your opinion on how this breaks down. There's also a chance he's not even there at nine. I no, would, I would bet he's no, not. I, well, well the, maybe Reinbacher, but yeah. I think Reinbacher's gone before Sandine Pelican. I think Reinbacher's gone before Detroit makes any pick. Now, which in my scenario doesn't matter because then one of the USNTDB guys is sitting there at nine and I'm going to do that 10 out of 10 times if I'm the GM because you have the almost exactly what the Red Wings need forward in Ryan Leonard who could fall. You have who the guy who might be the most purely gifted offensive player outside the top five in this draft with Gabe Perot. You know, uh, so am I passing up one of them to take a chance on a small defenseman? Probably not. I'm probably just taking those. And like I said, I'm still probably leaning, you know, Dvorsky or Moore or whoever over Sandine Pelica, but it's a circumstance that's definitely worth thinking about at this point. Anyhow, this has all been a really good, like it's a good primer for what Detroit's construction has to be based on what we talked about today and and what we mentioned directly post-draft lottery, which was, you know, this is the Red Wings reality now and they simultaneously need to get better and need to get out of sucking and, and having us have to care about draft lotteries. But, you know, we would love to not have an annual draft lottery live stream. Like how sad of a statement is that? Uh, this is how we have to start to consider what the Red Wings and Steve Eisman need to do for, for Hockey Town to slowly improve. Uh, a lot more to come. This is going to be the theme of the the roster discussions or in construction discussions for this team for months, if not years ahead. Let's jump into uh, a player that is going to be relevant for the Red Wings. Some say at pick 17, some say at pick nine, others say shouldn't be for either, but uh, Nate Danielson is a very relevant prospect because of what he brings to the ice, uh, the kind of game he plays and the position he plays. Uh, Center for the Brandon Wheat Kings in the WHL, all-around, well-rounded player, is he a guy that the Red Wings should look at? Who is Nate Danielson as a prospect? Poor man's Oliver Moore. At least that's my opinion of him. Um, Which isn't a, a, a bad, bad thing. Bad thing, no. It, for all the reasons we like Oliver Moore is all the reasons we like Nate Danielson. Um, he's a big center who can skate really well, not to the level of Oliver Moore, but can skate really, really well. Full 200-foot player, well-rounded game. The question with Danielson is, what is his ceiling? In my opinion, it's not very high. He's an 04 birthday. He's a late birthday. He is finishing up his third year in the WHL, and his production is not where you would want it to be for a first-round pick if you are looking for any offensive upside. He's over a point per game, but not by a ton. He is playing on a very weak Brandon team, which is worth mentioning because that obviously is hindering him a little bit. His game tends to feel a little too simple at times. Like he, he, it just looks like he lacks that creativity in his game. 
he's not devoid of offense. So, you know, I, I, every time I make points like this, I feel like I'm oversimplifying it. It's there. He can produce, but he produces mainly by his speed and size. Like he's, he's not often making super creative plays that lead to offense. A lot of the questions I had about Quinton Byfield, I have about Nate Danielson, but obviously two, two very different degrees. Yeah. So don't say that's a one-to-one comparison, but we've seen the struggles Byfield have had and those concerns I had have come to fruition with Byfield. And for a lot of the same reasons, I have a lot of questions about Nate Danielson. So, you know, I don't hate the player. He's actually a guy I would love on the Red Wings just because of the type of guy he is, the type of player he is, how responsible he is, how fast he is. A lot of what he is is what the Red Wings desperately need. To me, though, his upside isn't worth a first-round pick. Just just plain and simple. Oh, not a first-round pick. Late first, sure. Like, So in reality, what do I think Nate Danielson is? I think he's going to be Joe Valeno. So I love Joe Valeno. Would I take Joe Valeno at 9 or 17 in this current draft as he is now? Absolutely not. Would I take Joe Valeno again where the Red Wings picked Joe Valeno? 100 out of 100 times. Absolutely. So I'm applying that same logic to Nate Danielson because I would love him on the Red Wings. And if they want to trade up from one of their high second round picks to jump back into the 20s, potentially to get Danielson fully on board for that. I don't know if he's worth a trade up, but that's the range I would pick him. I fully agree with you in that his his ceiling is a question. If you think there's an untapped level of offense in there, and playing on a weak uh, Wheat Kings team hampered that, and you think he could be a true top six production level center, you take him at ninth overall and you laugh while you're doing it. He plays a complete game, 200 foot. It doesn't co- uh, come at the cost of skating. He goes to the hard areas of the ice. He's able to to actually you know produce on offense. Like He has an offensive aspect to this game. He already plays a mature 200 foot game, so I think he projects as a center. Good size. And if you think there's an elevation of offense there, absolutely. I agree with you, though. The ceiling is the question. Being an overager calls that further into question. So you're you're wondering, is the production that we've seen so far from him in the WHL because of being an overager, or at least partially aided by it? I mean, I think it's fair to consider. But yeah, I think, you know, poor man's Oliver Moore is not at all a bad way to qualify him. He's a player I would be comfortable with the Red Wings taking at 17, even if you think he's only going to be a middle six guy or uh, a, a not really productive second line center, but one who can, can contribute in other ways. His game is, I don't want to call it safe and as in it's boring and it's limited, but I think safe is a good word to, to, to put out there. He's going to be an NHLer. That that's what I will say about Danielson in the highest compliment I can give him. His game is so well, rough, so well rounded and his speed is so good that I struggle to see a reality where he's not an everyday NHLer. My projection for him is a third line center at best, like at best. If you want this type of player, I have a hard time talking myself into Nate Danielson when Oliver Moore is there. Cause Oliver Moore is better. I agree. At, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Oliver Moore is better at just about everything. Not by much, but he's better at everything. <laughs> so, uh, he's a little more creative. He's faster. Like he, his 200 foot game is a little more well-refined. So it's like, I have a hard time talking myself into into that player, especially too when you get to pick 17. You have to bring up the question, what does Detroit need? 
Because for me, what the Red Wings need right now, I'd rather gamble on Cal Ritchie at that point because I, I feel like there is a higher ceiling there. I feel like there is more untapped because they're in very similar situations in the CHL. They they are both top-line centers, leaders. Uh, they both wear letters, which is worth talking about because Nate Danielson is the captain of the Brandon Weekings. So mm-hmm. Red Wings like their character guys. That's a huge plus. But I feel like the creativity is there for Cal Ritchie where it is not for Nate Danielson. So if you're talking ceilings, even if you're taking a long shot middle six center, he's not the guy I'm taking. What else is there left to say? Yeah, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I agree from, from the looks I've had of him, like he's a middle six forward. Likely. Um, he's got a lot of great tools to, you know, he's certainly going to play in the NHL. It's just, how high does it go? And um, with everything you guys said, I, I don't see someone with elite scoring talent that would push him up the depth chart. So, I mean, a lot of teams like those kinds of picks, though. They like those certainty guys who they can just get into the lineup and have a long career with. Yeah, the Red Wings do. They've picked a ton of players in yeah. this mold. <laughs> yeah. Like, so my is, God, they is, Marco Casper last year. Is he a viable pick 17 for you, Evan? I wouldn't be upset with it. That's kind of where I'm at. I, I don't the the Richie point is really good though, Brad. That's making me think like you're you're kind of assuming the same risk, but the reward is potentially a lot higher. Uh, but yeah, he plays an Eisenman style game, 200 foot, responsible, good size. Uh, uh, the drive is there like that. He will be an attractive player for the Red Wings. I'll oh. say based on what the Red Wings like, like uh, ignore what we like. I think he is an option for Detroit at nine. I would just based on what we know of the Red Wings and the kind of game he plays, he has to be in the in the conversation for them. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get killed for saying this, but there's there's one previous Red Wings draft, and this is in a different administration, but I'm getting the same vibes right now. Where you like the player, you don't like the player at nine. And I can say at nine because it's the same damn circumstance. We're all we've all been thinking it. We I had both these players rated in the twenties. Big CHL player who dominated, and you weren't sure if it was because of his size or his skill. Anyways, big Michael Rasmussen vibes with Nate Danielson and the Red Wings at nine because I'm I agree with you. I can absolutely see the Red Wings doing this because he is absolutely the Red Wings type. I both want to say all of you who have your Brad bingo board check off compares player to Michael Rasmussen, but I also agree with you, so I can't make fun of you too much here. Uh, I, I think you're it's the same kind of risk. That said, I I wonder if like if you if there is that offensive pool of talent there where he can really step it up, Nate Danielson could be the biggest steal at nine or, or past the you know bodified top four or five in the entire draft. So it just depends on how you you think about him. That if he was, you know, if teams really did think that he had that in him, I don't see him going past like six or seven based on what he's bringing to the table. Yeah. And for all of you who are yelling at your speakers right now going, but we love Rasmussen now. You're right. We do. And every single person listening to this right now, if they could redraft 2017, they're taking Nietzsche or Suzuki and not Rasmussen. Like, don't even lie to me. No, not one Red Wings fan alive is taking him at nine again. Yeah. There are there are draft boards that could fall in certain ways where at pick 17, I'm thinking Nate Danielson is not only an acceptable pick, but probably one of the better ones. And it would have to go pretty unfavorably for Detroit in, in terms of our perspective. But, you know, no Oliver Moore, 
none of the defense are there. Obviously, divorce. He's off the board. You know, that's talking about pick nine. But yeah, Matthew Wood is off the board. Cal Ritchie's off the board. Basically, yeah. basically those similarly talented players, but with higher offensive upside, are gone. Exactly. So he's an option. Um, I think he's one of the players I'm going to be watching more just to see if you know we missed a trick with him or we're we're thinking too low of him. I know. I think. Corey Pronman has him. Uh, he thinks very favorably of him. Uh, so the variance on Danielson is high. So he's a player who you could see either rise or fall pretty drastically. Danielson's the classic example of uh, the public rankings are going to be very different than what the NHL rankings are going to be. Because again, he's a guy NHL teams are going to look at very favorably, whereas the public rankings probably not so much. And the true ranking is somewhere in between. Yeah, I think in January, Bob McKenzie had him uh, mid-first round, like around pick 15, which is about what we're talking about right now. So, And he didn't factor into the top 12 of the most recent uh, rankings. So the NHL internal scouting opinion seems to have Danielson as a mid-round prospect. So that's our prospect profile and Nate Danielson. These are going to come at you hot and heavy between now and the draft. So... Uh, the bigger names especially, uh, so stay tuned uh, for all of that and how it evolves. Lots of uh, lots of questions to come for Detroit, especially because now we know their second first-round pick has moved up from pick 18 to pick 17. So it's a pick that originally belonged to the New York Islanders. It went to the Vancouver Canucks in the Bo Horvat trade. Detroit acquired it from the Canucks in the uh, Philip Hronick trade. And based on how the... Uh, uh, the draft order is decided and all the calculations that goes into when playoff teams get eliminated, et cetera, et cetera. Florida advancing to the conference finals meant that the Islanders, which is now Red Wings, moved up from pick 18 to 17. So Detroit now holds in the 2023 NHL draft picks 9 and 17. Let's talk about who lost to make that happen. The gentlemen's sweep, the Toronto Maple Leafs lost in five games to the Florida Panthers. They did end up taking a game. They won their first second round game in nearly two decades, but uh, Florida got it done in overtime in front of the crowd in Toronto because, of course, they did. That series is over, and it's only one of the shockers so far. Uh, Shocker, depending on what you think. But uh, first of all, Florida, what a run. Secondly, Toronto, what now? Well, Florida, you know, the... The state of Florida right now, come on, the Miami Heat and the Florida Panthers, you get two eighth seeds going to the conference final on the same day. It's just not fair. That is that is like professional sports owners' dreams, that happening. We don't have to spend all that money and we can continue on in the playoffs? Incredible. This is why fringy playoff teams load up at the deadline because they think they can be Florida, even though this is a team one year removed from a president's trophy. And Sergei Bobrovsky has remembered how to play at an elite level out of nowhere. And all they needed was Matthew Kachuk to play at a heart level for an entire season plus two playoff rounds. Like, you know, just just very reasonable things needed to happen. Oh, and their opponent uh, that they were playing in the second round just completely looked disinterested and uh, not involved at all in the second round. You know, just just the perfect circumstance. This is why, and I'm going to connect this to Edmonton right now. Get like the winning the Stanley Cup is just as much about timing as it is talent. Like you, Florida got hot at the right time, especially with the other teams who really who could have 
they have the, they could have delivered a killing blow. They had the opportunity to keep Florida out, and they just kept losing. Pittsburgh just completely fumbled the bag. They screwed it for everybody. They absolutely did. And Florida got hot at the right time. They figured their shit out at the right time. Bobrovsky coming in changes things. And the Bobrovsky point is something that I, I don't know how teams look at that and still stick with a regular season starter who's floundering in the playoffs, who's screwing them. Look, Stuart Skinner in Edmonton had a great season and he was their best chance going in. They gave him one, two, three, four, five. How many chances to keep that net? How many poor performances did he put in? Campbell came in and uh, it was over, you know, 48 saves or something like that. It wasn't a big sample, but he was good. The playoffs are all about vibes, your streakiness, and how much confidence your team has in the goalie. I don't care if Campbell was one of the worst performing, biggest head case goalies in the league all season. If he is getting hot at the time, you have to go to him. Boston went to Swayman too late. Edmonton didn't lean on Campbell when Skinner wasn't doing it for them. Florida has Bobrovsky. And he's been getting it done for them. And they 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 made that switch and they stayed with it. They didn't galaxy brain it by going back to Lion. And here they are in the conference finals. I don't know why, and I know I just pulled us away from the Florida Toronto, but I don't know why these other teams like Boston and Edmonton are so attached to these goalies. Prashant said this great. We've seen Dominic Hasek lose his net in the playoffs. If he can, the, the greatest goalie of all time for my money, Anybody can, and they should. It's your responsibility as a coach to give your team the best chance to win every night. Even if this goalie is only going to be good for a dozen games, those dozen games could see you lifting the greatest trophy in sports at the end of it. What if I told you that those coaches did think that they were doing the best thing to make their team win that, or giving their their team the best chance to win that evening? That's what makes this league beautiful. Mistakes. And here we are with no Canadian teams left. Hey. Vegas has the most Canadians in the in the NHL. I'm pretty sure. So that, hell yeah, that's the uh, if if you're a Cana- like fan of just Canadians winning the cup, Vegas is your team. Congratulations. Well, uh, Evan gets to reference seventh uh, in the division all the time. I want to point out that before the playoffs, I said nobody was talking about Vegas, and everybody should have been talking about Vegas. And here we are with them in the conference final. As a Jack Eichel truther, I am very smug right I now. I think I read somewhere today that he's the betting favorite for the Conn Smythe right now. I think it was, I saw a lot of like plus 700s on him. Based on the teams that are in, like, yeah, Carolina, who would it be right now? Burns, maybe? I think Burns is a really, like, he's a sneaky good vote too. If they would win be the cup. Kachuk and Babarovsky. For Florida, yeah. Jack, Eichel. We'll see what happens. We're recording this before game seven of uh, Seattle Dallas, which has been a phenomenal series. But yeah, Seattle has no obvious candidates. Dallas. Wyatt Hintz? Johnson. <laughs> no. Isn't Rupe Hintz, what, well, he was tied for the playoff scoring lead before McDavid overtook him yesterday, I believe. Yeah, McDavid's at 20, Rupe Hintz at 18, tied with Leon Dreisaitl. And then uh, hmm. the last remaining player, or, or the next best remaining player is Matthew Kachuk at 16. And then Jack Eichel with 14. Like, there's, everything is up for grabs, including the Cup, including the Conn Smythe. With Toronto now, uh, Dubas had his press conference um, and his contract has expired. Toronto didn't extend him. They won the series. I do think he secured his job if he wants it. But in his presser, he referenced a lot of, I need to do what's right for my family. It seemed to have been a very tough year for them. And as I was watching it, I went, oh, he's squeezing them because he knows Pittsburgh wants him. And Mm -hmm. he wants a big payday. But then he went on to say, I'm not interested in going anywhere else. It's either this or nothing. 
And if you're negotiating a contract, you don't really say that. Um, it could be true, but you would rather negotiate with another team making offers on the table. He's, I don't think he burned himself. Like he'll still be able to get a lot of money from Toronto, but I think that's real. Like the, the trials and tribulations of working in Toronto, that pressure has to be insane. So there's a dollar of amount associated with having to be the GM of Toronto oh, or the coach. hundred percent. You lose your sanity. Yeah. It's, and, it costs more to be that, to be in those positions. And it also costs more to live in Toronto. That place is ludicrously priced. Have but, you seen that? Have you seen that guy who's been doing TikTok videos? Canadian housing versus literal European castles. Oh yes, hilarious account. My favorite trend. It's yeah. so fun. He did one in Kitchener, and then that house burned down a week later. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Just, Coincidence? I think not. Yep. Just throwing it out there. Uh, Dubis is in question. Is he going to return? You have everyone looking at their core four players. What's going to happen with them? Matthews is coming up to expiry. Uh, um, you know, Nylander, is he the player who's on the outs? Because, you know, if you want to keep Matthews and Marner and, and you have Tavares, is he going to be on the market and he's going to have a heavy market? Do you let him go? Do you trade him this offseason with one, one season left at a very good contract? Like, what do you do? Toronto, do they blow it up now? No. No, like I, like I said in that intro, we couldn't run. Uh, tires will be kicked. Um, the funny thing with Nylander is he's probably got the worst rep of the core four, and yet he's been the most consistent playoff producer for them. He was the such a gamer, these playoffs. Yeah. If you're a Leaf fan looking at Nylander and saying he's part of the issue, like, I'm sorry. You're, you're an not, idiot. You're not watching yeah, these you're games. You're an idiot. Yeah, I, he gets kicked the most, and I hate the Leafs, but I am... I am such a William Nylander truther. I, he's only got one year on his contract, left on his contract. Otherwise, I'd be banging the table for Detroit to be trading for him. Um, but he's a pending UFA next summer. So, you know, there's that crux of it. I don't know. Toronto's got a very interesting scenario ahead of them because, you know, I believe in talent and I believe in building a team the way Toronto's building the team where, you know, we just had this long conversation about how the Red Wings can win with depth, but they have to because they don't have another option. You look at the teams that are like Tampa, who's been sustainably successful. They have, you know, their core for whatever you want to call it of eight, nine, 10, 11 million dollar players. But the one thing I've alluded to uh, this episode and a lot in the past that I think Toronto's lacking and I think just has to become a fundamental change with, you know, Matthews and Marner specifically. You got to be a prick. Like I, the whole playoffs, you, it's so random, but I know we talked about it on the podcast and it kept jumping into my mind. You remember that scenario in the regular season where the Leafs were playing Philly? Oh, of course. And... Travis Konechny and Austin Matthews got into it, yeah. and Matthews was just standing there laughing while all his teammates were fighting for him. Yes. I couldn't shake that image in the whole playoffs. I'm not saying that you can't win with Matthews and Marner. You can, but they have to learn to do what Braden Point and Nikita Kucherov and Brad Marchand and all these other superstars on top teams and Matthew Kachuk do, which is we are going to run up the score on you. We are going to put a ton of points in. And we're going to punch you in the face and we're going to cross check you when nobody's looking and we're going to chirp you all game and we're going to be actual dickheads on the ice. Well, there was and a the, Leafs, the Leafs core four doesn't do that and they have to. There was a moment, I think, at the end of game four where Matthew Kachuk was basically giving Marner like jersey jabs and he's just standing there taking them while looking at the ref like he thinks the ref's going to call a penalty. Like, you gotta, it reminded me of the Sedin 
Yes, moment. Yes, Mark yes. Shannon Sedin in the finals. And it's like the refs aren't going to call anything, man. Like the game's over. Yeah. Like the the game is over. They don't call anything ever anyway. That makes sense. So stand up for yourself. Like show that you've got some character and some fight and some 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 bite. Yeah. Like that stuff drives me nuts. Like I know in minor hockey they always say just like let it go, let it go, and all that stuff. And like that is what it is. But like. This is, this is this was their punk test. This is the NHL. You got to punch someone in the face when someone needs to be punched in the face. And I know I'm opening my boomer window here and I'm and and it sounds like I'm saying this is the only reason the Leafs lost. I'm not saying that. The Leafs core four also need to adapt to their game and learn to score in different ways when games go certain ways. They get stifled for 3-4 game stretches all too often. Yes, and if you can't score a typical Austin Matthews goal, well, Austin Matthews has to learn to score a goal like Matthew Kachuk scores a goal. Like, you just have to. You look at Stamkos, and we know his threat from the same area as Matthews traditionally scores, but guess what? Stamkos finds ways to get goals in other ways when that option is taken away from him, and the Leafs haven't done that yet. And I'm not saying the Leafs should give up on this because we've seen time and time again players adapt and eventually get over the hump and... Like well, I mean, the, top, the clock's ticking. Yeah, it is ticking. But I mean, Tampa was that team forever that couldn't win, and then you know, for a lot of the same narratives the Leafs have now, and then eventually they adapted, got it done. Washington, same thing. St. Louis, same thing. Like it can be done, but there are also the other examples. San Jose never, never did. Done. Like you know, so and it's so hard to tell when you watch the press conferences with guys like Matthews and Marner. Like I just. I'm not getting any vibe that they, I'm sure they do want to overcome it because they are ultimate competitors and pro athletes, but I don't get the same. And Steven Samkos goes up to the mic and he's, his body is broken and he says like, we need to be better and we'll, we need to learn how to win. I believe him. Yeah. When Matthews and Marner say it, I don't get that same feeling. I think I, I think you guys are right in that they need to do these things differently. They need to adapt. They need to be, you know, add a little sandpaper. And it's not just about all about sandpaper. They need to score in different ways. They need to adjust to the way, you know, if a team is going to bring a Matthew Kachuk game to them, then they need to respond in a certain way while still having that skill edge. If you're Toronto, I think you've hit your head against the same wall too many times. And it's, I disagree, Brad. I, I don't think you blow it up as in. Oh, I'm not saying don't do anything. But I'm not saying you blow it up for the sake of blowing it up. You explore the right trade. Down Goes Brown had a really good article about this. He's saying, you know what Florida did last year after their massively disappointing season? They didn't stand in a mic and say, we're going to run it back and everything's going to be fine and we believe in these guys. They went out and made one of the biggest trades in recent hockey history and it worked out well for them. There could be, you know, we talk about Kyle Connor all the time for Detroit. Maybe that's an option for Toronto. You know, maybe they look at, you know, Money out, money in. Looking, yeah. Yeah, like they're... Looking at their cap chart, like it's not lined up favor- favorably. They're going to have to get creative. Who's coming up first? In At the end of 24-25, Matthews and Nylander. Those players, like it or not, they're going to get raises. In the case of Nylander, a big raise. In the case of Matthews, he's going to rise with the cap. Who comes off in 25-26? Marner, he'll get a raise too. Maybe not as significant. He's not going to sign an extension this year. Um, Tavares, well, he might, I don't know. Tavares, $11 million off the books. If they could swap Tavares and Matthews, they would give up an arm and elect to do that. Because I think if you're Toronto, you want to bring Tavares back at a pittance. 
you bring them back at a price that's reflective of, hey, we overpaid you for all these years. Now give a little bit back and help us win a cup. But it's just not the way it's going to be. If I'm Toronto, I'm thinking, who wants to pay a premium for Willie Nylander? And can you get some premium draft picks or players who are younger on on better cost-controlled deals? And you honestly explore what you can get from Mitch Marner. I don't, oh. I don't think either of those guys are necessarily the problem. I think in terms of playoff performers, Marner did better this postseason. Nylander obviously loved his game this postseason. But if you're Toronto, you have to consider massive moves. You have to look at every option. But again, you don't make this sit a trade for the sake of making a trade. Because I use the floor example, but that's not a one-to-one. They acquired the best player in that trade, and they moved out two core pieces to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the Leafs are trading Matthews, Marner, and Nylander, I don't see a trade available out there where they are getting the best player in return. Like, they will have to get mega creative on that. And You have to keep Matthews. You have to. But if he, by July 1st, if they don't think he's going to sign an extension with them, they have to trade him. They have to. He is way too valuable to just let walk for nothing. You know, we had this conversation about Larkin. Yeah. Th- this is Larkin plus plus. Like you can't lose him for nothing. And the thing with Matthews is he's so good. You can get some very good now players in return, but I still don't see the Leafs winning that trade. Because trades of that magnitude don't happen in this league. Like no. LeBron James doesn't like there's no LeBron James moves across teams. There's no we traded 17 first-round picks and three, you know, starting on the floor players. It just doesn't happen in the NHL. Not to um, sort of railroad this conversation, but do you think Edmonton is in a worse scenario than Toronto is right now? I was just going to segue us there. I or- don't think they're in a worse scenario, but it could be, like, immediately, but it could be more dire at the end of it, if that makes sense. No, Edmonton's in a way better place than... They are. They're in a better place right now. Drysaddle's got two years left. McDavid's got three years left, if I'm uh, remembering this correct. They have time. The Leafs don't, because as of right now, they have one more year of Matthews and Nylander. That's two of their core pieces. They have one more year left. Now... Okay, but that that you're right in terms of cap, but think kind of emotionally about the players in, in their respective markets... McDavid is frustrated and has been for a while. Oh, so if we're what, talking frustration levels. Edmonton is still in a better spot. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but, you know, they're... The Leafs players have only been on the team for a handful of years. The fans have been there for decades. Two years left of Drysaddle, three years left of McDavid. But they are also in a bind. What do you do? Because the second a second round exit is a... Failure this season. How long has no. Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl been on that team? And what do they have to show for it? One conference final? That's a disaster. Yeah, the the Oilers. I mean, you are, had Shirelli for a little bit of that, so I will, you know, give you some leeway on that. Well, but. I mean, Ken Holland also decided that Jack Campbell and Stuart Skinner was a Stanley Cup goaltending tandem. But um, the thing with Edmonton is their problems are simpler. I don't think there's a lot of holes on the Oilers roster, and I don't think there were a lot of performances in the playoffs that the Oilers were disappointed in outside of their goaltending. I think you get Edmonton a proper goalie for these playoffs. They're in the conference finals right now because, you know, and the second round, and this is why I hate this playoff format, for the Oilers is unacceptable. You could very easily have 
yesterday morning made an argument to me that the two best teams left in the playoffs were the Golden Knights and the Oilers. Oh, that that, that could has, have been a Cup final in a different playoff format. That has conference finals written all over it. So the fact that the Oilers are out in the second round is bad, but the fact that they lost to the Golden Knights isn't entirely unacceptable. I would, I mean. Edmonton was the two seed. The Golden Knights were the one seed. They lost to the better team. They were the underdog in that series. So Yeah, but try telling that to fans who have the two best players in the world. No, I don't get me wrong. You have McDavid, well, Dreisaitl, Hyman, Nugent Hopkins. You should be winning Stanley Cups every well, year. Well, they have the third and fourth after Jack Eichel and Matthew Kachuk right now. But, um, yeah, I, I think... Edmonton has a little more time and their problems are a little more obvious, which in theory sounds like a worse thing, but in reality, it's a better thing because the solutions are a little easier. Their cannon to shoot Darnell Nurse into the sun is a little bit closer than Toronto, (laughs) based on tilt of the earth. $9.5 million until 2030. That is... Wow. It was bad at the time. It's bad now. It's worse now. Like, I I just don't, I, I understand as the, that. As a team signing. who's used to anchors. Like, remember the summer of 2016 when Steven Stamkos just set off this cataclysmic chain of un- unfortunate events for a lot of NHL teams? That's what the Seth Jones contract did for the defense market. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, you're yeah. exactly right. Uh, Someone saw, had to sign Seth Jones. <laughs> I want to talk about this slash, and it's irrelevant now because Vegas won the series in, in six games, but Alex Petrangelo at the end of a game came in and gave Leon Dreisaitl a, you know, coming from the top. Ogie Oglethorpe would have been impressed. <laughs> chopped down to, to Dreisaitl's hand slash wrist. Um, I saw that and went, that's got to be three games. I, I, wow. I think I, I honestly think minimum two and I can understand it with the way the league operates, but minimum two and I would give that three games. Darnell Nurse got suspended for an instigator from that, right? That's the same and they game. Got the, he got a game yep. and they could have rescinded that, right? Because yep, correct. the rule is if you get an instigator with like five minutes left, it's an automatic one game suspension. Yep. yep. The league rescinds that stuff. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. This regular season, I might have the number wrong, but I know I'm at least close. There were three instigator penalties given in the last five minutes of a game with the automatic suspension. Every single one of them was rescinded. Okay. And so Petrangelo also, I thought for sure if Darnell Nurse is getting one, Petrangelo is getting one plus one. Yeah. I, I N plus one, basically. I thought they would do the same thing, but instead they made them... They just, you know, they, what do we do? How many times do I have to say, what are we doing here? This league is a joke. And Friedman had the best line on this in terms of describing it. He's like, if it feels wrong, it's wrong. Because what Darnell Nurse and Alex Petrangelo did are not equivalent. No. They're not in the same stratosphere. I'm They're sure not on the same fu- planet. I'm pretty sure that fight was agreed to before the puck dropped. Like, there's an argument that that should have been rescinded. I have no problem with them leaving leaving it in place. I, Red Wings fans don't need to be talked about, you know, rescinding the instigator uh, suspension. But yeah, that was wrong. You cannot. You can never chop a guy like that. But chopping a superstar, the most important player for that team, arguably in the playoffs, as the game was ending, like the end. 
the the justification that was uh, talked about was the league didn't want to take Petrangelo out that deep into the playoffs for that long. Uh, that I'm, is the stupidest reasoning it's so I've dumb. ever heard. But I, the, but the people who are saying that are right. Like I don't want like that's what they that's the, the basis yeah, of their decision making. Yeah, people are saying this is the NHL Department of Player Safety. Uh, line of thinking. They thought that Nurse Petrangelo was an even trade-off. It wouldn't affect the series. They didn't want a superstar like Petrangelo out. And like the people who were saying this were getting roasted. They're right. That was a hundred percent what the Department of Player Safety was thinking. Now, what they were thinking was wrong, bad, and stupid, which is why that entire department needs to be cleaned house. Because an attempted amputation <laughs> five seconds after the play against one of the best players of this generation is worth one game. I don't care if it was Alex Petrangelo who slashed him or Adam Ernie. That player should be done for the series at a minimum. Like, really, truly, think. I don't think enough people are actually taking into account what that play was. Dreisaitl shot the puck at the empty net, missed. The play continued. What felt like an eternity went by, then Alex Petrangelo came by with his stick over his head like he was literally chopping wood and chopped Leon Dreisaitl nowhere near his stick. Like, this is attempt to injure 101. This is Petrangelo trying to take a guy out of his series. And a lot of people are saying, hey, the Oilers have been taking liberties with Petrangelo all series, and he had every right to be as angry as he was. You're right. They were taking liberties with him. He had every right to be angry, and he should have inflicted as much pain on the Oilers as he could. Legally. No, <laughs> like, I'm stabbing him in the eye with the end of my stick. I don't care. Like, <laughs> like you can't. Sebastian Aho, Marty Nachash. Uh, if Dallas makes it through Robertson, if uh, Seattle makes it through Beniers, whatever. These players now have targets on them to say, "Yep, if you uh, if you're a really good player and you want to hurt one of the other team's really good players, you'll get maybe a game." I've not like. Some people said, oh, old-time hockey. Mm, no, this isn't old-time hockey. Old-time hockey is not officiated in, in uh, this league anymore. That's not the style this league is in anymore. That's not the way suspensions are, are called. It's not a surprise because it's the Department of Player Safety and they miss so damn often, but one game is a joke. Two, it's funny because of the, the, the difference between one and two. I would have said two is a joke, but I understand it within the scope of how this league operates. It if, should it if, should have been three for me. If you believe in the old saying one playoff game is worth two regular season. Give it two. Sure, fine. I don't buy that. Like, if you believe that playoff games are worth more, then yeah, two is probably in the range of acceptable. I Not for me, but we're... Close. But the one thing that came out of this incident that I want to talk about is the whole new respect I have for Dreisaitl and Nick Bukestad. Yeah. yeah, Because in game six, they both like got near Petrangelo and just wound up for this big fake slash like they were going (laughs) to, like they had no intention of slashing Petrangelo, but they wound up like they were going. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Bukestad just standing there in the scrum, like with the eyes wide, hit, stick over the head. Oh, oh. Yeah. I, like, this is Daniel Alfredson pretending to throw a stick over the glass after the Sunday <laughs> thing, like levels of petty. And my God, I put it right into my veins. I need more of this shit. I love it. 
I don't love what Petrangelo did, but I love the Oilers' reaction to it there. Anyhow, uh, Vegas gets a last laugh here as they move on. And, and this none of this is to take away from how impressive they've been, which is uh, incredibly impressive. So kudos to them. We'll see how the Dallas Stars and the Seattle Kraken shake out as they head into Game 7. But these playoffs, if oh, we are, we're potentially looking at an uh, all-expansion conference final. Oh, prepare for those old hockey men articles. I think, oh, yeah, boy. people are going to be very mad at that, but I think, <laughs> it's, I think it's great content for the league. I, I think love it. Florida Carolina is going to be interesting. Uh, I am disappointed to not see Connor McDavid play further into the playoffs yet again. I think that's that's Should have been better. Should have won. Yeah, it's on Edmonton. Be uh, better. Actually, Connor McDavid, 20 points through 12 games is... You know. Oh, be better. I mean, the old hockey men articles are going to be off the charts regardless of the outcome tonight because if it's Seattle, Vegas, oh, the uh, expansion rules were unfair. Maybe they weren't unfair. Maybe just this is exposing how bad half the NHL GMs are at their jobs. Um, or it's Dallas, in which case the final four markets for the National Ice Hockey League are Las Vegas, Dallas, Texas, Florida, Carolina. Some beautiful weather. That's My the Gary God. Gettin, uh, <laughs> signature right there. That is some beautiful weather. Okay, uh, very quick update that I want to mention here. Um, the Toledo Walleye, partially on the backs of Sebastian Cosa, are uh, moving on in the Kelly Cup playoffs. Uh, they're facing the Idaho Steelheads in the conference finals uh, or the third round. Sebastian Cosa, four, four games played, four wins, 1.25 goals against average, a 954 safe percentage. Uh, has let, only let in five goals on 109 shot or on uh, 114 shots. So that is outrageous. Yeah, between him and Letheman, they continue to get some really good uh, support. Toledo. So and their defense is also outstanding. One point I want to make on that because I've seen a lot of talking points because obviously not a ton of people watch the ECHL. You know the excuse for Kosa while he's playing behind a stacked team, which is true. It's probably at least worth mentioning. That his numbers are far superior to Lethman, who's been playing behind the same team. So, Kosa, at least we can directly compare to one other ECHL goalie, who he is. And and here's the thing, Lethman's playing well. I think he's got a 920-something. And Kosa's yep. light years ahead of him still. Yeah, Lethman has, uh, I believe, a 925 it was. So, uh, yeah, Kosa has... He has risen to the task. He's done all he can do in that net. If you want to talk about, yeah, he has a Carolina-style defense ahead of him. I mean, yeah, you can't change that. Yeah, 925 and 225 goals against average. So uh, you mentioned this earlier in the episode, Brad. We've seen what we've wanted to see from Kosa in the ECHL this season. And the playoff, this playoff run is really, it can only be good for his development. Okay, we are going to jump into overtime on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, which is proudly brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Again, patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to get access to our bonus episodes, uh, our uh, all of our giveaways being automatically entered, and, uh, of course, getting access to the Winged Wheel Podcast Discord. Uh, and then you support the Jamie Daniels Foundation, our expanded content universe with Expected by Whom, and lots more. So patreon.com slash Podcast. Oh, and later in the offseason, when we go down to one episode a week, uh, patrons still get two a week with some uh, bonus content. Cody Stark, we're going to take some questions. Cody Stark says, uh, so the, are these Jack Adams winners really that good, then all of a sudden that bad a year or two later? Or do the voters from the Professional Broadcasters Association really not have much to vote on other than comparing wins to the roster available? 
More or less thinking out loud, but I would love your takes. Maybe they should let the GMs or coaches or associate head coaches vote on it. They probably have a better idea of what other coaches are doing to be worthy of the award. It is literally just the team that did expect better than we expected award. That's all it is. A hundred percent. That's what it is. So I don't think this, here's the problem with coaching. You really can't do much beyond that because the actual intricacies of coaching are a behind closed doors for the most part. Yep. And be very hard to visualize on the ice, depending on the level of talent on their roster. There's no goals above replacement, goals above replacement, quantifiable stat or anything like that for coaching. Yeah. The reason it becomes team that does better than we expected award is because there's not many other metrics to be able to judge a coach on. Like John Cooper has never won a Jack Adams. Yeah, that's this year's Mike Babcock. The Jack Adams is a kiss of death. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's just for a little context. And I think it's also a function of uh, coaching is so, so fickle in the NHL. Like it is one of the most short-term positions. If you have a long-term coach, it's a rarity in this league. So uh, I see that. That award, if you think about awards as uh, having a problem, how serious you take it, it has a problem the same way the Norris Trophy has a problem where it overvalues offense for a a award that is based on defense. Shut up, nerd. Yeah, I know. I'm just, uh, (laughs) it's something near and dear to my heart, which I know I'm going to be shut up nerded about for the rest of my life. Uh, Matt says, between the two, who do you think would be more likely to leave their current team after their contract expires? Matthews or McDavid? That's a fantastic question. I'm going to say Matthews. I'm going to go McDavid. I'm going to say McDavid too. McDavid. But I don't I don't totally know why. But you know what? McDavid's going to make a trillion dollars wherever he goes. Money's not going to be an issue. I think he's been frustrated for a long time. Matthews, I think it's still like there's a big risk of him going for sure. You know, being from Arizona, they're probably going to have the cap space and, and the want for him. Uh, but he has it made. Like he's in a premier NHL market. He loves doing that, and he has something that even among superstars is hard to find, which is he scores goals. He didn't as much this year, and that was a rarity. So I think you know the the Leafs are likely to pay the premium for him. Playoff results be damned. You don't just let that walk away. So I think I think McDavid's frustrations will probably be a little bit more significant than Matthews in this hypothetical. So I'm going to ask you one quick question that kind of is what I'm based my answer on. If a hypothetically either of them were to win a cup with their team, would they likely then stay with that team? Well, Toronto would be burnt to the ground, so I'm not sure that's <laughs> possible. But in the hypothetical, so if Matthews wins a cup with Toronto, do you think he signs an extension with Toronto? Yes. If McDavid wins a cup with Edmonton, do you think he signs an extension with Edmonton? Definitely, yes. Cool. McDavid's got three more kicks at the can. Matthews has one. That's fair. Yeah. yeah that's fair. I, I think these are... There's also a likelihood that neither resign. Yeah, that that might honestly be my guess. <laughs> Gary Bettman is lighting every candle in his house, praying for A, the chaos of Matthews. Matthews going to Arizona to save them and McDavid moving to the Eastern time zone. He just goes to Toronto. Bet- honestly, Bet- maybe. <laughs> Bettman might pay them an extra million per year out of his own pocket to make that happen. I know people don't like it, but if McDavid moves, uh, Toronto is... I mean, everybody's lining up. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try to get him on the podcast. Like, uh, yeah, that's going to be the Red Wings sweetener. 
the last time a player of that caliber has moved was Wayne Gretzky. So <laughs> just to put that into context. That's an actual literal statement. Dylan Larkin's Nana says, who has a higher offensive upside, Bichamikov or Lombardi? Fantastic question. I think Ooh. more uncertainty, but higher upside, Bichamikov for me. I agree. Agreed. But that's a tough one. Uh, Babe Landiscock says, would you rather poach players from the Jets, the Leafs, or the Oilers? Also, would you rather the Wings manage to steal Meyer or Brat from the Devils? Um, I would love either of them from the Devils, so I'm not going to pick. Uh, if I had to pick who to pick players from, I'll I'll take Connor McDavid. Thank you. Yeah. If, <laughs> if you're talking like Nuge, then, you know, I don't know, really. It yeah. depends on what the price is. It depends be. on the likelihood here. But that wasn't asked, so I'm I'm asking for McDavid. Thank you. It's an interesting question. Winnipeg's I, the only one that's going to do that. Yeah. But either Meyer or Brat would be great from the Devils. I know uh, Meyer had questions about how he performed, uh, oh. but I don't think that's indicative of who he, he is. He really heated up towards the end of that series. It's he, just the rest of his team didn't. Um, Andy says, I might be drinking the Kool-Aid, but after seeing so many teams with the first overall players get knocked out early, I feel even more encouraged that the team Eiserman is building will have success. World-class management is a more significant difference maker at times. We have so many A-hole type players that once they mature, we're going to be a tough team to play against all year. Harks back to what we were talking about, which is that's what you need to do. And also, yeah, I mean, first overall picks don't have a lot of success in this league. Yeah, but when, yeah, was, the last, when was the last time a team without one has won a cup? Like, isn't it like... Thir- like 30 it's, years it's top two pick and i think st louis is the only one to have done it since the hurricanes in okay so 06. you still need a superstar it can be done but yeah it's it's uncommon i don't know if i'm exactly correct anyhow uh it is a good point uh let's we have time for for one more question here before we wrap up the st louis blueth <laughs> i don't know why that name is so funny huh. Seeing Promen speculate there's a real shot Michkov falls to 6 to 10 range, you got to think Eisman would push all the chips in to grab him, right? Would it take 9 and 17 to get it done and move all the way to 6? More? Cheers, boys. Depends on how the board falls, right? And, yeah. and how those teams value the players. Because I think Michkov at 6 versus, you know, a team who values Reinbacher at 6, for example, those are going to cost different things. Yeah. Um, I think the team at 6 is hoping that that happens. Yeah. No? They're going to put a big premium on it, and it begs two questions. Why would they do it? And 9 and 17 is tempting. Uh, whether you think that's enough, I, I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable, so it's probably within the range. Um, I have advocated a lot over the past few weeks, and, and I stand by it that Detroit has to start overpaying to make these moves. Um, would it get done? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it would you do it though to move up three spots if nobody else is calling, then and they're gonna get a mil of all the times the team at six would get calls. It's if Meechkoff is there, yeah, and that's why I think it's probably not enough. And at which point you if have nobody to think, calls and that's the only offer, and they're not all that high. And on, on Meechkoff and the uncertainty with all that, then uh, maybe they say yes, but I'd imagine the. Uh, the caller ID will be exploding. So you're you're on a different uh, train than Brad and I, which is that we would get Meechkov at all costs, and you're not so hot on the uncertainty in the three years. Oh, I no, I don't think you know me. I don't think the Red Wings are going to be good in three years. So um, I would have no problem with them taking it. It's just I think everyone would be calling, and the cost would be outrageous. I will say, I know a lot of Russians have just signed. 
Uh, but whenever you get like the biggest name Russian players, you do have to think, how will Vladimir Putin feel about this? Which is, you know, not something that often goes into scouting reports. What are his thoughts on sports washing? That might help. <laughs> not uh, easily digestible. I'll tell yeah, you that. Three years, it might not even matter. So we'll see. <laughs> Okay, uh, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Uh, Thank you all so much for tuning in. Again, this week is going to be a bit adjusted. Next episode is going to come out on Thursday. We'd like to thank all of our listeners, uh, our name-level supporters on Patreon, especially Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Leafs in Nine, Nick Perks, We Are Geelong, the greatest team of all, Glenn Brabham, The Hat123, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Babe Landiscog, Bros Before Hosas, Carl Brutina Nanaluski, Chimmy, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Cooking with Kosa, Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kaylin Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Lobster Serenade, LOL, Lob Singer, Get It, Haha, Got Him, Effin' Nerd. Uh, Marcus, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, RA, Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Ryan, the Ryan Hannah Hannah, Scott Martin, that's what I appreciate about you, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan, A.A. Ron, Adam Gowitska, uh, Brian Vasha, Adam Rose, Brad Simmons, Captain Antonio Gracias of the United Federation of Cheesebags, C.J. Wilkinson, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force, Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, I Can't Decide on My Next Patreon Name, Instructions Unclear, Cheesebag No Longer Fresh, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Matt Keeler, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, O. Ophelia, Stephen, Tatarsos, The Hodag, The Honorable Sir Poopy Pants of the Poop Bag Army, and the St. Louis Blueth. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you Thursday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.